Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you that may not have been here last week, we began our fall sermon series, and the focus of the fall sermon series is going to be on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And last week I gave a bit of an introduction into Paul, to the letter, to Colossae, uh, so that people would understand a little bit of, of the background. And there's something that's important for me to weave in before we begin and launch into this particular sermon on the book. As we continue on in chapter 1, we come to this point where Paul is beginning to address the situation in Colossae. Because the situation is is that there's struggles there. There's a heresy there. And they're struggling in general because the city's in decline. And I said last week that Paul, in fact, had never been there. He had never preached there. But he's writing this letter because he loves them and wants to encourage them. He loves them, at least in part, because they know Christ and they're in in the church, but also because Epaphras, who Paul refers to in this particular reading, came to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. So Paul has a special place in his heart for Epaphras and for his ministry. Now the interesting thing is, when he writes this letter... He says some challenging things to them. And I guarantee you that there are people there, when they receive this letter, will say, He doesn't know us. He's never been here. What's he doing challenging us? See, because they might misunderstand his love and his care and what he has to say because... They have expectations as to what love looks like. Now I want you to hold that thought. Because the same thing is going on in the Gospel reading. The Gospel reading in John chapter 11, Lazarus is Jesus' friend. He loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And the question that keeps coming to Jesus from people when they're talking behind the scenes. From Martha and Mary. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, because if you really loved my brother, then you would have been here. If you really loved my brother, you would have healed him. And because you weren't here, subconsciously, overtly, the love is questioned. The reality is we do the same See, if I feel love from you, it's because you've met something in me that I needed you to meet. But if you didn't meet that need, if you didn't meet that desire, do you really love me? See, that's the question in our culture today. If you challenge me, if you question me, if you don't do it my way, 
then you don't really love me. And many of us don't always understand God's ways. We misunderstand sometimes what He's doing. And sometimes, in fact, like in this particular situation, He has a far greater gift for the people that are around Lazarus. Lazarus himself. Lazarus' family. See, we don't always understand how God works. We don't always understand love. And who's the source of love? God. We say God is love. So God is the one who teaches us what love is like. And in this particular situation, they don't have his perspective yet. Because Jesus is trying to teach something far different, far deeper. He has an eternal perspective on things. And what he is much more interested than you feeling happy and warm fuzzy in this life is for you to know salvation and eternal life. For you to know what the love of Jesus is all about. For you to experience the cross and the forgiveness of sin and the conviction of sin in the first place. For you to discover that God has far more in mind for you than oftentimes we have for ourselves because we're short-sighted. We see our own needs, we see our own desires, we see what's right in front of us. And therefore, we can't perceive His eternal perspective and His eternal plan. And how He wants us to understand that if we really receive the gospel, it's going to mean change for our lives. It's not just a good idea, it's not just a good feeling. And sometimes that means that God, in fact, is going to discipline us. He's going to correct us. He's going to direct us. Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines those whom He loves. Now just think of people in your life that may have misunderstood that at times. If you've had children, you know that at times you need to discipline them. If you don't, you're in trouble. But you need to discipline your children at times. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this if you've had children. You don't love me. I mean, because if you love me, you would let me do this, or you would let me have this, or you'd get this for me, right? You don't really love me. See, it's the same idea. Teenagers, there's another ball game. See, because by the time we get to our teenage years, we know everything. Right? We think. It's amazing how much we learn and we grow till we get gray hair. Once we get past those teenage years. But the reality is a teenager in rebellion knows it all. And you don't love them unless you do what they want you to do and give them what they want. See, but that's the way we often are before God. We know what's best for us. We know what we want. And so if you love me, God, this is how you're going to do it. Paul's saying, you need to understand. God has so much more in mind for you. 
He affirms them right off the bat. He says the reputation of your love is already out there. I've heard about it. I've heard about it from Epaphras. I know that you love the saints. But God has so much more in mind for you. You know, once again, let's go to Jesus. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and Sadducees and was brought to court and would eventually go to the cross, did anyone ever say of Jesus, you know, he just didn't love people? No. He just didn't care. That's not what they said. See, the reality is they misunderstood Jesus. Because he has an eternal perspective on our lives. He wants us to understand salvation and the transformation of our lives. So much so that we more and more begin to reflect his life and his love in our lives. Pause for a moment. What would people say about your life? What reputation would you have? What reputation would this church community have? Would we have that reputation of love? Of being transformed, of being God's people that are different in the world. Different from the world and its values and the culture and in particular how we treat each other and treat the world. See, because if the gospel is real in our lives, it means a change. It means it's not all about us and what I want and what I feel. It's about what God's desire is for our lives. And it means first and foremost transformation. Because if we were okay the way we were, we wouldn't need the cross of Jesus Christ. If we were okay the way we were, we wouldn't need the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to change us and mold us and produce His fruit in us. Transformation is what God's about. And then that we understand that we begin to walk with Him day by day. That we more and more reflect His nature in our lives as if we truly are following Him. As if we're truly His. And that people know the distinction in our lives. That we have a holy life. That we have a loving life. And that's why Paul writes. Because Paul wants them to more and more understand that some of their perspective is off. Because there is, they're a city in decline and they're fearful and their pride is hurting. And there's a heresy brewing in their midst that's going to redirect them away from the Lord and what His call is on our lives. And Paul is saying, I want to tell you this because I love you. And I want you to stay fixed on the gospel. So that's the context as we enter this particular passage. And if you have your bulletin... In front of you, you can look at the scripture along with me. Or if you want to follow along in the Bible, it's page 1072. But Paul writes, beginning in verse 4, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Did you notice those three words that I kind of paused on just momentarily? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Do you know how often in Scripture those three words go together? The end of 1 Corinthians 13. And now abide in these three. Faith, hope, and love. So often they go together because they're so interconnected. If we truly have the faith that the Lord talks about, then we have this hope of the resurrection. We have this hope for our lives that in fact we can be transformed. We have this hope in our lives that we can love the way Jesus loved. We're not stuck. And we don't have to be fearful because we have hope. And this love can blossom in us. But the foundation is once we find that faith in Jesus Christ. So you find these woven into this particular passage. Now, let's go to John chapter 11, which is the gospel reading for today. Now, you don't have the beginning of John chapter 11 when the story of Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Jesus uh, begins. But let me read to you from the first several verses. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. In other words, you love him. You've got to come heal him. That's the message. Verse 5, accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after her, having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Ooh, does that sound right to you? He loved the three of them. He was even pitched in coming. The one you love is ill. So we see that love woven in there. In verse 11, when he's talking to his disciples and said, now's the time to come, he says, Lazarus has fallen asleep and I'm going to wake him. There's hope in that. And then Jesus talks about resurrection. And there's hope in that. And he says to the sisters, do you believe this? There's the faith. The faith that provides the hope. Because they say, yes, we believe. And so we do have the hope of the resurrection, still not fully understanding So there's faith and there's hope and there's love in this story. But see, the gift that he gave to them is that even though they went through the pain, especially since they understood they were loved, it's because God had a greater gift for them. The gift of showing them this resurrection. Jesus' power over sin, over death, over fear. This triad that we're talking about shows when we really understand what God is trying to do that God is always working in us. He's always the initiator. He's the one that wants to bring us faith in the first place. That God is working for us. That's how we have faith. That God is trying to initiate. That He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross. God is for us. 
He's reaching out to reach us. That God is working in us to develop this hope. This hope for eternal life. This hope for a transformed life. And God wants to work through us to not only cause us to experience His love, but then to share His love with other people. That that's what God has in mind. He's working. And He wants us to experience His transformation. You know, think about it in this way. The first focus we need is the focus upward. We need to look to Him. Then the next focus is to look forward. That what God has in mind for us is a changed life. What God ultimately has in mind for us, that we will share eternal life with Him. And then He wants us to focus inward. That we experience His love and that we learn to share His love that goes outward. And that's what He did with Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And that's what He did with the apostles in the upper room. When Jesus arrived in the upper room with the apostles, John chapter 13, we're told that He loved His own and He loved them to the end. His apostles. He loved them so much that He washed their feet and then said, let me explain to you. And then He goes on in chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In other words, the faith. And then he goes on to say, I will prepare a place for you. That's why I have to go first. There's the hope. And then throughout the rest of the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, you read over and over again promises. You read over and over again hope. The foundation of faith and the love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, in other words... You're going to need to be transformed. And I will send you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to be with you. In other words, to be that change agent in you. To strengthen you. To transform you. See, even when it's not overt in the Scriptures, we see this triad at work. Faith, hope, and love. Going hand in glove. Let me show you some other passages that Paul writes that these three are woven into. First of all, in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, there's the foundation. Through Him who we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. There's the hope. And then you get down to this list of when we go through suffering and we go through endurance and we experience perseverance, then eventually we develop the character of Christ. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. There's the triad again. So, so far we've seen it in John. We've seen it through Paul. Let me read to you from Peter, the apostle. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, 
And we are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he goes on to say, although you have not seen him, you love him. Over and over again, you see this triad. And this triad of faith, hope, and love is meant to cause, first of all, that not only would our lives be transformed, but then we would be a blessing to others. We would produce fruit. Back to, I'm jumping all over the place on you, you got to follow, stay with me. Colossians chapter 1, the reading. Look in your bulletin. Right after we get to the hope. You have heard this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel. See, this triad comes through truth. And in our day and age, truth is up for grabs. Truth is opinion. Truth is what you feel and I feel. Truth is fluid. Truth is subjective. You'll hear truth is relative. All kinds of different descriptions of truth. As if there is no objective truth. Now, if there is no truth, how do you have faith in anything? If there, if there is no truth, what's the promise of eternal life? What's it really mean? If you have no truth, where's love? Because if there isn't truth in a relationship, there's no trust in a relationship. And where's the love? Truth is essential. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I will send you the Spirit who will guide you into all truth. Truth is essential to understanding this triad. And when we understand the truth of the gospel is when we can receive grace. That's why Paul goes on to say, you have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you, just as, in, just as it, it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. In other words, this is spreading. So it has been bearing fruit amongst yourselves from the day you heard it, truly comprehending the grace of God. See, once we understand this truth, we understand it to be grace. It's not something we earn. It's not something that we do. It's not something we produce. It's not our opinion. Grace, another word for grace is a gift. God has given us a gift. The gift is Jesus Christ. The gift is forgiveness of sin. The gift is the promise of the Holy Spirit to have a transformed life. That's the grace given to us. Now what happens when we comprehend this grace, when we receive it, and the truth is in us, and we experience this triad of faith, hope, and love, we produce fruit. That's God's desire. That we produce fruit. You know, too many Christians just want to be plants. They don't necessarily want to produce fruit. See, because fruit means that I'm putting out. Fruit means that it's for other people. See, but fruit is part of the design of why God made us the way He made us. 
The fruit of the character of Jesus Christ. The fruit of a righteous and holy life. The fruit of obedience. The fruit of other believers. The fruit of generosity. So we become a blessing to others. That's God's design. Jesus tells the parable of the sower and the soils. Two of the soils that he talks about, one is hard ground, rocky ground. There's so many people in the world and even in the church that have hardened hearts. And God wants to break into that hardened heart to make it good soil. Too many Christians have shallow soil so that we don't have root. Our faith is only superficial instead of deep. Having those roots go down, and when those roots go down into that soil, how the plant grows strong and begins to produce fruit. That's what God wants for us. And by the way, soil doesn't make itself good soil. God's got to do the work in you. But you just need to open yourself up to Him. You need to give yourself to Him so that He can break your hardened heart if that's what you have. That He can make the soil deeper in your life. That the word for soil, homus, is related to the word humility. God wants to break our hardened hearts. God wants us to grow deep in Him. And that we need to humble ourselves and open ourselves up to Him. Even when we don't comprehend what God is doing and why. Even when we don't perceive it as God is loving me the way I want to be loved. But when we open ourselves up to the truth and His Holy Spirit and being transformed how we can grow and produce fruit. And Paul gives an example of this fruit as this passage draws to a close. This you learned. What he's talking about right now. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. You know, we don't know much about Epaphras. We don't know what his former life was. But obviously Epaphras was a changed man. Because I guarantee you his former life, he was not a pastor and an evangelist and a church planner. The gospel took root in his life and he was transformed and he became an example to him. And what does Paul write about Epaphras? Fellow servant. See, when the gospel takes hold in our lives, one of the fruit that it produces is we become servants. Now, servanthood, we hear about that all the time in the Christian faith. Jesus was a servant. He washed feet. Jesus laid down his life for us. But you know, servanthood is often a good idea for other people. We don't always like to be servants. Sometimes if we can really shine, you know, in the big things, you know, we look good because we're a servant, then we don't mind being a servant. 
But God calls us to be a servant day in, day out. To give up ourselves, to humble ourselves. To be willing to be different than the culture. To risk being misunderstood when we proclaim Christ and we live His life. To be willing to confront a culture that isn't always friendly to our faith. Servants. Sacrificing. Laying down our lives. You know, Paul goes on to write in his letter to Philemon, which we will look at later because it's a related letter to this. When I say later, not today. Paul writes, my fellow prisoner. My fellow prisoner. In other words, Epaphras was willing to sacrifice, was willing to be misunderstood, much like Paul, so much so that he would be arrested. Not because he was mean, not because he was evil, not because he did a crime, merely because he followed Christ and preached Christ. And he was misunderstood. You know, we're in a battle. I don't know whether you realize that. We're in a battle. You've got Satan and the world and your own flesh striving against you following Christ and living his life in the world. We are in a battle. Let me tell you how my mentality has changed about battles over the years. You know, when I was a teenager, early 20s, uh, Vietnam, and I would kind of pray half-heartedly for our troops. And then, of course, more recently we had Kuwait and Iraq and Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, my prayer life has really deepened praying about people in war. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, it's because I have a son in Afghanistan. And you know, it's amazing how when you have that kind of investment, it changes you. My son fights for a cause. My son is willing to lay down his life for his brothers in arms. My reading has changed over the past couple of years, in part because of some of the books that Daniel has recommended to me, like War, which is based on the movie, or the movie Restrepo is based on the book. Most recently, The Lone Survivor, which is about a Navy SEAL. It's given me more insight into how these men and women are sold out for a cause. So much so that they see themselves, if necessary, laying down their lives for their brothers and sisters. Our cause is Jesus Christ. 
Our cause is His gospel accepted and lived in this world. And our brothers and sisters in arms is meant to be each other as we support each other, not shoot or wound each other. And that's why love is sometimes costly. That love is meant to be forgiving and forbearing. That love is meant to be servanthood as we give ourselves away. And I'm afraid too often we take our faith too casually. And we can slide into being encultured, being compromised, living for ourselves, which is what the world advocates. And God wants us to be different. God wants us to live as people of faith, as people who have hope, as people who are filled with His love. And it doesn't matter what the weather is. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances or challenges are. That we are called to be His in all ways. That we are to live by faith and with hope and in His love, sharing His love. That we are to live as servants for Jesus' sake. And where that battle begins most effectively is on our knees because it's on our knees that we're able to look up and recognize what Jesus did for us on the cross and worship Him and lift Him up in our lives. And when we are on our knees, we are better able to wash feet. And we're standing tall and looking only at ourselves. And I invite you right now to fight that battle. And let us get on our knees. Let's pray. Who's doing the creed? Lord God, so often, so often we live a faith of convenience. We live a faith of compromise. We live a faith of ease. So often we want love to be on our terms that serve our wants and desires. We want our faith to be something that affirms but doesn't challenge us to be servants. Lord, I pray this day that you would that you would reveal to us anew what Jesus did for us on the cross. That he died in our place for our sin. That he was one who came to serve to wash feet and to give his life for many. Lord, I pray this day that we would discover the depth of faith, the power of hope, and the transforming power of your love. That you are a God of grace, 
who has given us a gift. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to truly open and embrace this gift and to live a life of faith and hope and love and servanthood. Even when it costs, even when we're misunderstood, that we would live for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.